I am so excited for this lesson, and I am bursting at the seams to see how God is going to use His Word to transform our lives. But I've got to start where the lesson started for me, and that was my freshman year in high school. Now, I don't know how many of you have tried out for a team, but I tried out for basketball. And I've never been like a great athlete, but I really wanted to be on a team, and I wanted to fit in. In junior high, I had ran cross country. And in cross country, it just depends on how far you can run, how long you can run, and how fast you can run. It doesn't really have a whole lot to do with how tall you are. And that's a good thing, because when I started high school, freshman year, I was four foot nine inches tall. So I was the shortest person in my high school by far, but I still tried out for basketball. Well, the time came, you know, when we had the tryouts and we did all of that stuff. And eventually, you know, the coach posted on the wall the people that made it. And I went to the list and I stood there like Zacchaeus waiting for the tall people to move away from the list so I could see it. And my name wasn't on it. And I didn't make the team. So I practiced and I tried, right? And I didn't grow a whole lot between my freshman and sophomore year. I might have grown an inch or two, but I'm still, what, five foot, five foot one? But I tried out again, and I gave it my best, and I, once again, you know, I, I knew that the list had been put up of the names of the people that made it, and there was a varsity team, and there was a junior varsity team, and I was hoping that I made one of them but my name wasn't there again. Ah, it's so frustrating. And to see people rejoicing and so happy, and for me to walk away and go outside by myself, kick the dirt, I was so frustrated. But then I started growing some more. Now, you got to bear in mind, I'm not that tall now, but Every inch that I was adding at that time, man, it was golden, right? So the next year, I try out again, right? And so I'm trying. I'm doing everything I've can, I can. I've added a few more inches, not too many pounds, but a few more inches in height. And, and the time comes where I go, and I see my name. The lists are up. I see my name. I'm so excited I made the team. And then I start reading the list carefully. And what I realize is that there was a varsity team, a junior varsity team, and what they ended up calling C-team. The, the C-team. Now, what apparently we ended up being was kind of like an intramural squad where our games were either against the people that actually made the teams or against other schools with teams like mine. But I made the team. I didn't care. I didn't care if it was C team. I was playing. I was so excited. On the 16th of December that year, my birthday, I was in the game and I scored two points. You might think, oh, wow, well, congratulations. Well, yeah, those were my two points for the entire season. Yes, I, yeah, I, I, I didn't mention that part. I was on the bench 
on the C team and I scored two points the whole season. It really does matter to us to be chosen. We want, we want to be on the team. We want for there to be someone that says, I was looking for you. I couldn't wait to find you. I know this is, this is sensitive and it's hard to hear because a lot of us have felt the pain of not being chosen or being unchosen. A very dear friend of mine in Indiana had lost her husband. He had passed away. We'd done the funeral. We worked together for many years. And several years later, we were in a conversation where she was talking about two experiences. One experience was her divorce. The second experience was the loss of her second husband in death. She said, you know, even though those last 10 years I was loved so well by my second husband, and even though I grieved him more deeply than any loss in my life, the greatest hurt I've ever experienced, and listened to the way she described it about her divorce, was I had been chosen, and later I was unchosen. You see, we have it within ourselves as humans to be part of, of humanity, to be part of the relationships. We are created in the image of God. God, Father, Son, and Spirit. God, how we understand the triune God, one. And we were created out of that image. We are meant to be in relationship with one another. We're meant to need others and for others to need us. We're meant to want relationship with others and for others to want relationship with us. And when that isn't happening, it hurts. The church is meant to foster and to grow and to nurture those kinds of relationships and to actually model those kind of relationships so that we can grow, but also so the world can see what the oneness of God is meant to be like in human relationships. The Apostle Paul describes this famously in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he talks about the fact that there's many parts, like of our physical bodies, but it's one, and, and the parts need each other, and the parts should be honored by each other, and the parts should care for each other. He said, see, the church is like that. That the church doesn't, you know, the head doesn't look at the foot and say, I don't need you. Or the hand doesn't look at the eye and say, I'm not as important as you. He said, just as your body would never do that, the church does not do that. So the church is meant to demonstrate internally the love and the acceptance and the oneness of God to help us grow into that. But then in the world, we're modeling that in our world. Now, has in your lifetime, has there ever been another time when the world needed to see a model of love and relationship and oneness more? In the polarization that we are experiencing in our world, in our nation, in our state, in our communities, in our churches, in our homes, in our schools, in our businesses, has there ever been a time where we needed oneness 
more where we needed to know how to bridge broken relationships. Has there ever been a time when we needed it more? We're in a study of the people of Israel, and the text that we've been reading and learning from is the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a man who actually served in the royal court of Persia the royal court of the Persian kings, but by birth, he was a Jewish man. And when he heard that his fellow Jews who lived in Israel were really having trouble, and they were having great economic difficulty, great difficulty in relationship to the other peoples around them, They were struggling to rebuild their homes and their farms and their temple and their cities and their economies. Then when Nehemiah heard this, he asked for permission from the king of Persia that he served to go to Israel and to lead a rebuilding project, a restoration project. And that's why we're calling this series Restore Making Home Feel Like Home Again. You see, when a nation a region, a community, a school, a business, a church, or a family is divided. We know something's not right. We can feel it. That divine DNA says something's not right. But how do we, how do we restore it? How do we rebuild it? How do we nurture oneness and love in an atmosphere, an environment of so much polarization? Well, we get an interesting clue in Nehemiah chapter 3. So I want you to turn in your Bible there to Nehemiah chapter 3. Now, here's what I want you to notice in Nehemiah chapter 3. This chapter, as far as I could tell, doesn't have to be in the Bible. You're like, wait a second. If the Holy Spirit put it in the Bible, it needs to be in the Bible. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Of course it's got to be in the Bible because the Holy Spirit inspired Scripture. It's supposed to be in there. What I mean is, if it wasn't in there, we wouldn't miss it. We wouldn't think, oh, well, what what happened? We don't understand the story because chapter 3 is not there. No, when we read chapter 3, We need to remember it's there for a purpose. It's there on purpose. We're supposed to get something out of chapter 3. And in chapter 3, it tells the story of rebuilding the wall. But I want you to listen to this story. And I want you to listen for who got picked for the team. Nehemiah chapter 3. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it, and they put its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho, they built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanah. They laid its beams and put its doors and uh, bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, the son of Baanah, also made repairs. 
The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles wouldn't put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. The Jeshana gate was repaired by Joiada, son of Pasia, and Meshulam, son of Besadea. They laid its beams and put its doors with their uh, bolts and bars in place. Now, next to them, repairs were made by the men of Gibeon and Mizpah, Metaliah, and Gibeon and Jadon, son of Maranoth, or of Maranoth, and uh, under the authority of the governor of the trans-Euphrates. Uzael, son of Herhiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section. And Hanani, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. Well, they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall, and Rephaiah, son of Hur, who was the ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Jediah, and son of Haramoth, made repairs uh, opposite his house, and Hattush, son of Hashabaneah, made repairs next to him. Malkijah, son of Harim, and Hashab, son of Pehath Moab, repaired another section to the Tower of the Ovens. Shulam, son of Halohash, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. The valley gate was repaired by Hanun and the residents of Zenoa. They rebuilt it and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Now, they also repaired a thousand cubits of the wall. That's, a cubit is 18 inches. A thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Now, the dung gate was, somebody had to do it. The dung gate was repaired by Malkajab, son of Rahab, who was the ruler of the half district of Beth Hacherim. He rebuilt it and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. The fountain gate was repaired by Shalom, son of Kolhazah, the ruler of the district of Mizpah. He rebuilt it, roofing it over and putting its doors and bolts and bars in place. And he also repaired the wall of the pool of Siloam by the, king of the, by the king's garden as far as the steps going down from the city of David. Beyond him, Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, the ruler of the half-district of Bezur, made repairs up to opposite of the tombs of David and as far as the artificial pool and the house of the heroes." Now, I've actually only read half of the chapter, but we read enough to get the point. Do you notice who made the team? Well, what are they actually doing? Uh, they're rebuilding a wall. How do you rebuild a wall? Well, it kind of looks like you stack rocks in place, right? Right. And how many of them? Thousands upon thousands. And some of the, ro the rocks are smaller, like maybe the size of your toaster. Some of the rocks are bigger, like maybe the size of a suitcase. Some of these stones are as big as a semi that you would see on the road. So it would require many, 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 many volunteers and all kinds of levers to move these rocks around. So from the small rocks to the largest rocks, this was a big project. And you know what? The mission was to rebuild the wall. The only way to rebuild the wall was to stack all of those rocks. Now you might think to yourself, well, aren't there people that do that for a living? You know, like a stonemason or a bricklayer. Aren't there people who actually do this for a living? Well, of course they are. 
I come from a family of people that worked in construction. Of course, there's people who are very skilled at this, but here's what you have to remember. The people of Israel were in poverty. They couldn't hire anyone to do this work for them. Number two, the people of Israel who actually went home from captivity was a small group compared to the whole population. They were overrun with work and responsibilities. They had to plant farms in order to have food to eat, let alone redig wells. They had so much work to do. But you see, if they didn't rebuild the wall, they could not feel secure on the inside and no one would take them seriously from the outside. That wall had to be rebuilt. It was more than just a decorative wall. It was a wall that provided protection, and it was a wall that provided identity. City walls in their day and time, in the time before Christ, it said to people, these are a legitimate people. This is their legitimate home. Without the wall, home was not going to feel like home. They had to do it. But who was going to do it? Did you notice who did it? It said a man and his daughters helped build the wall. It said a perfume maker helped build the wall. A jeweler helped build the wall. Priests, soldiers, people from in town, people from out of town, merchants, farmers, salespeople. You do realize Everyone made the team. This right here, this is the sign-up sheet. This was me looking at that wall, searching for my name, saying, did I make the team? Do I, do I have any skills that matter? Do I belong? This is the list. It's in the Bible for a reason. It's in the Bible to say to people, hey, there's a whole list of really hard names to pronounce. Or did you notice that that so-and-so is the son of so-and-so? That's not the purpose of this list. The purpose of this list is to catalog for us how the people of God came together and everyone was needed Everyone was necessary, no matter where they were from, no matter what their job was. If they were a jeweler, a soldier, a priest, a merchant. If they were someone that was a superintendent, or if they were people that had never put a rock in place in their life. All of them were needed. Church, during this pandemic, if there is one thing that has been become crystal clear in this church, we are all needed. If you look over the past several months at our online services and now for the last six weeks in our on-campus services as well, you will notice that everyone has been involved. The young and the old, women and men, people who have never prayed in front of the church in their life and people who've been doing it their whole life. People have taught Bible studies that had never taught a Bible study in the church in their life. And people have taught Bible studies who've written curriculums about Bible studies. You see, what we're learning and how God is preparing us to launch into the future is that every single one of you matters. You are on the mission. You are on the team. You are equipped 
and called by God to help us build the kingdom of God in the world. You are needed. You are necessary. You are loved. You are accepted. And take that gift that God has given you and spread all of those gifts to others so that the world can see God's vision of oneness through the mission of the church.